You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. CNN anchor and chief Washington correspondent Jake Tapper joins the Post to discuss his new book, The Devil May Dance, a new historical fiction on the Rat Pack era in Hollywood. Let's listen. Hi there. Welcome to the Washington Post Live. I'm Jackie Alemany congressional reporter and author of the Power Up Early Morning Newsletter. I'm so excited to talk to Jake Tapper today. I'm sure you all know him. He's a prominent member of the media covering politics from the White House to Capitol Hill to everything going on around the world. And he's also managed to become a best-selling author somehow on the side. Welcome, Jake. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Jackie. Good to see you again. Likewise. I want to dig into your new novel, which I was totally immersed in all weekend. But first, I got to ask you about some politics and media. We wrote a story last week about how CNN anchors have become more emotional. Can you talk about the change in tone a little bit for us? Sure. I I read the story. Um, I'm a fan of Jeremy uh, Barr. my opinion, I didn't know he didn't ask me anything about the story before he uh, he wrote it. I thought he kind of conflated a few different things in the story. One is that reporters and anchors often cannot avoid having emotional reactions to death, especially when it's mass death, like COVID or a massacre, a gun massacre. So that part of it uh, that had to do with Sarah Seidner or I think Brianna Keeler having emotional responses. I, I don't think that that's new. Um, so that's one. Uh, I mean, that's we're you know we're human and we have reactions to these sorts of things. I remember, you know, on 9/11 after 9/11, there were a lot of emotional responses. Um, so that then there's the thing that I think he 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 was on to, which is that um, uh, Jeff Zucker has been a great boss for. CNN anchors and journalists, and he's our advocate, and he encourages us to be who we are uh, and report the news uh, fairly and honestly, but also, you know, uh, not hold to old versions of what being a TV journalist meant maybe like in the 50s. Um, so that, that, that part, I thought he was onto something. And then the third thing, which is part of the second thing, but I think... Uh, I would have liked to have, this is the editor in me, I suppose, the would have liked to have seen explored more is um, the the phenomenon of CNN calling out lies um, is not really all that new. And I mean, he used me uh, a couple times as an example of that, but I don't think it's all that new. And I also see the Washington Post grappling with the same phenomenon, which is not really a media phenomenon, but more of a, what do you do when a sizable part of the a a specific political party, in this case, the Republican Party under the leadership of Donald Trump, what do you do when they just start lying? How do you cover that? And I've seen lots of Washington Post reporters and editors grappling with the same phenomenon. Maybe we do it a little bit more openly uh, because we're doing it on TV. But that, to me, is a separate and distinct phenomenon from Jeff Zucker and how he and us and more a phenomenon of, well, we need to be telling the truth to our viewers and in doing so, in, in this, this is not a time for he said, she said. It's not like, well, he says that a whole bunch of ballots with bamboo threads were shipped in from Asia to tip the Arizona election fraudulently. 
And she says that's not true. We'll leave it up to you. No. The bamboo thing is crackpot insanity. And, you know, and the election was, by all accounts from credible sources in Arizona, uh, uh, clean and fair. So, I mean, I think that's the thing. So that's my, you asked, so I'm giving you my honest, yeah. candid yeah. answer. That, that's what I thought I, when I, I read the story. I think that's a really important distinction to make. And as a loyal viewer uh, of yours and, and CNN in general, I mean, cable's always on in, in my background. I do really appreciate the authenticity. Uh, it's something that makes me decide to, to watch certain people as opposed to to others, but you were covering January 6th live, the insurrection that we all saw out play out on Capitol Hill. You were live on air during yeah. it. What was going through your mind as you were anchoring? How did you know just how far to go uh, with what you were seeing and all that was incoming? Well, I mean, we'd been covering it, uh, and you too, Jackie. I mean, we'd been covering it for months. You know, this is what we were all afraid of happening. You know, when, um, that uh, Georgia election official, uh, whose name, right this second, Gabe Sterling, I think is his name, when he warned in early December, stop lying about the election. This is a, you know, rock rib Republican telling Trump and his minions, stop lying about the election. You're going to get somebody killed. This is what he was warning about what happened January 6th. It was all, I mean, I didn't, I don't care about Joe Biden's feelings being hurt. We were worried about violence, you know? That's what that's what the fear was. When you incite enough people, when you mislead millions of Americans, when you tell them that there's this great injustice that's happening and you need to take the fight to the Congress, <coughs> pardon me, nobody should be surprised when that actually happens. So, I mean, that's that was my response, was like watching this and thinking like, this is what Mitch McConnell, this is why Mitch McConnell was mad at Josh Hawley when Hawley announced that he would actually be a senator objecting to the election, not to, you know, because it obviously you need somebody in the House and the Senate. Um, and Ted Cruz, this is why he was mad at them, because it's creating this false narrative that the election can be overturned. And all Trump supporters need to do, because they're being lied to by Trump and, and Giuliani and the rest, is go there and and, you know, whatever they thought they were doing, uh, intimidating, convincing, rallying, whatever, all they need to do is tell Mike Pence, overturn the election and he can do it based on these lies. So, I mean, it was just disappointing to see, but it was in, a way, in its way eminently predictable. And I was worried about violence that morning. So I'm astounded at the lack of security uh, around the Capitol because, you know, I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, but like, we were, you know, our kids didn't sleep at our house uh, that night, but long before the attack. And I, I apologize, by the way, there's a really obnoxious dumpster truck that's been going on for a while outside. But I, I also want to draw on, you've been covering D.C. for such a long time. There have been a spat of incidents, even in the wake of January 6th, that have been, as you've noted, shocking but not necessarily surprising considering the climate that we are in right now and the the aftermath of donald trump um but uh, last week i witnessed marjorie taylor green shouting down and chasing alexandria ocasio-cortez through I the halls of congress is this behavior that is normal in washington amongst lawmakers no but you went you you personally witnessed that yeah so i mean that's fascinating to me um, I mean, AOC 
uh, Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez put out, said, told reporters, and maybe you among them, something's wrong with her. You know, that's not normal behavior. And look, you can go back and find incidents in history of, you know, a member of Congress killing a reporter in the halls of the House or people getting into duels. Uh, do you know that spot in the House where there's bloodstains on the stairs? Yeah. Right now? It's, it's in my first book. Yeah, I mean, it's just, there's literally still bloodstains in the stairs. Anyway, um, yeah, you can find, you can find aberrations like that. What's, what's bizarre is um, that these are no longer aberrations. These are consistent, uh, not well, unwell behavior, demonstrations, demonstrations of unwell behavior by members of Congress on a consistent basis, not just somebody has a bad day or somebody, you know, gets into a duel 150 years ago. Uh, members of Congress um, from, you know, Democrats and Republicans, but when you're talking about like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Gosar and some of these others, like on a consistent basis that, it, that there's no apparent action by leaders in her party, it's it's very, very concerning and very, very strange. And it's just not how adults are supposed to conduct themselves, much less members of Congress. And I want to get back to the bloodstains and how that might inspire your overall writing process. From a selfish perspective, I am in awe of um, how prolific of a writer you are. But just one more question on this current environment that we are reporting in. How do you change minds when, as you noted, there are people who operate and traffic in facts, and then there is a completely different universe of people who don't. You know, it's so crazy. I was thinking about this this weekend. I, I did some pop buys at a couple, my, my publisher said, go to this Target and then go to a Barnes and Noble nearby and just sign books just to have like a social media presence to advertise the book. So I did that, uh, you know, unannounced. I went to Target and then I drove to a Barnes and Noble in Alexandria and just, you know, uh, I think my assistant called like five minutes before I showed up and they just brought out some books and I signed them. And the same professional liars uh, were out there like saying, look, Tapper had a book signing and nobody showed up. And it's just like, this is not, you know, this is not a, a major incident in the, in the annals of lies told. Um, but it, it was just, a. Uh, uh, stunning to see because it's like this wasn't a book signing. I stopped. I mean, it was just such a lie, but they don't right. care. Just an easy they, manipulation. They don't care. And it's like anything, any weapon in their salvo, any lie they will tell about anything, whether it's about a, a, a local pizzeria and what they're doing in non existent basements or, you know, about elections or, I mean, it's just, and all you can do is. The best job you can do, telling the truth as fairly as you can uh, and honestly as you can, uh, not picking a side when it comes to policy debates, um, you know, because that, I don't think it's our role to say we should do this in Afghanistan or we should do this when it comes to tax policy. I mean, that's for opinion journalists, sure, but not for people like you and me. And then just hope and expect that ultimately people will realize that liars are liars. I mean, I don't know if anybody follow, who believed the big election lies, I mean, it looks like it sank in for a lot of people, but those people, I think of them as victims. They're victims of this misinformation, disinformation culture. 
And all we can do is try to tell the truth and, and, and you know, correct mistakes when we make them, et cetera, and hold ourselves up to a standard that these professional liars do not, do not have and hope and expect that at the end of the day, you know, we will have an audience when people realize, wow, these guys are just, nothing they've told us is true. I mean, there's no bamboo ballots and every single courtroom uh, that's looked into this has said that there's no evidence of widespread fraud and Republicans are saying that true. And can it really be that the entire US Supreme Court and Republican governors and Republican election officials and Republican appointed judges, like all of these people are in on some sort of crazy conspiracy or maybe is it just the Occam's razor that Trump lost? Yeah, and it does feel like an information crisis, really, that the GOP has has no interest in resolving at the moment. But that's a whole separate conversation, and we can have at a later date. They they boost a lot of these liars. They they you know they embolden them. They they broadcast their views. I mean, it's they're they're not all of them, obviously, not all Republicans, but um, I mean, there's just a tremendous amount of disinformation, and it's just. Uh, it's enabled and enhanced by a lot of the Republican leaders, especially in the House. Let's talk about your novel, The Devil May Dance. Right. I have it right here. It's Soft a follow-up to the earlier novel, The Hellfire yeah. Club, uh, which was about the 50s. What was the impetus for you writing this second novel? Did you just need uh, to get away from the pandemic? Well. No, I started it before the pandemic. Uh, I started it as soon as I finished the last book, The Hellfire Club. I had heard this true story um, that Sinatra and the Rat Pack, you know, obviously campaigned their hearts out for JFK in 1960. And Sinatra, who was legitimately friends with President Kennedy, expected that when President Kennedy came out to, to Los Angeles and California, uh, that he would stay at the Sinatra compound at Rancho Mirage, about two hours outside LA. And Sinatra started doing work on the compound there, um, phone lines, additional rooms, a helipad. And at the same time, Attorney General Robert Kennedy was investigating organized crime. And uh, it was pointed out to him that he's investigating Sam Giancana and other mobsters. And Sam Giancana is friends with Sinatra. So Attorney General Kennedy had a decision to make. Do I offend Frank Sinatra and, and say, no, my brother's not staying there, even though this is one of the biggest stars in America and had been a huge, you can argue that Kennedy wouldn't have gotten elected with Frank Sinatra without Frank Sinatra's help. Do I offend Sinatra or uh, do I let my brother stay at a house where literally mobsters have slept? So once I found that out, I'm like, wow, that's such an incredibly incredible true story. Why don't I have for the sequel to The Hellfire Club, why don't I have Charlie and Margaret, the heroes of my book, go out there and figure out what's going on in Hollywood and whether or not Sinatra's really mobbed up. So it was just the real story that excited me. And then I wrote a lot of it during the pandemic, and that was a welcome relief from covering that horrible story. Um, but uh, that's not why I wrote it. And you go in and out, as, as you just noted, of uh, factual events. It is historical fiction, everyone watching. Um, but you make some pretty cre courageous, I think, cre creative choices. How did you, how did that come about? What What was your brainstorming process like? And, and you know, you had mentioned earlier that some of the actual 
true events that happened or even crazier than some of what you made up. Uh, how do yeah. you, you know, how do you create a story around that? Well, um, I don't know what uh, choices I made you think are uh, are bold, but I, I appreciate the compliment. Um, but, but I mean, at the end of the day, uh, you know, the goal is to write an entertaining yarn, a page turner, so people want to know what happens next and, you know, keep it based in uh, a real universe, but obviously an alternative universe where, you know, my fictitious characters are interacting with real people. Um, so, you know, I can't have Robert Kennedy rip off his shirt and he's wearing a Spider-Man uniform. I mean, that's not the universe <laughs> I'm in. I'm in a universe where like, you know, what would Robert Kennedy do? What could he do? What might he actually do? What was Sinatra like? And, um, you know, I just, I just, I tried to make it as entertaining as possible. That's really the, just the bottom line. So like, I tried to make it so every scene was in an interesting place. Uh, every you know, and 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 at a certain point, I just found it freeing. Some somewhere between the first draft and the second draft, I'm like, well, why don't I just sit this at the Oscars, or why don't I just end this end the book at the Madison Square Garden birthday for President Kennedy, where Marilyn Monroe sings Happy Birthday, Mr. President? I mean, the the chronology, you know, works out, and right. so I just tried to have fun with it. And you know, there were times, you know, because I'm a nonfiction guy like you, where you feel weird about it because we're just so used to covering what actually happened but i you know you just i just had to get over it you know it's a book it's a it's fiction people understand it's fiction i can have this happen because it's fiction and i'm not the first writer to do such a thing plenty of writers have you know put uh ha have played with history no but i do think it's rare for a journalist who again their main job is trafficking in nonfiction to so successfully you know, teeter back and forth between the two. And I, for all the journalism writer nerds on this uh, video right now, I've got to ask you, what is your process like? What is your advice? Uh, how do you do it? How do you write so much? How do you get so much done every day? Well, it's funny. So um, George R.R. R. Martin uh, says that there are two types of writers, architects and gardeners. Uh, and gardeners just go out and see what they can grow. And architects, you know, come up with an outline and I'm more, I'm much more of an architect, no question. I mean, I, I don't, and, and I should note that like, it's really whatever works for you. Um, I did a book event with Gillian Flynn, who is a hero of mine, and she's a complete gardener to the point that she said that the bad guy in Sharper Objects wasn't even in the first draft of Sharper Objects. I mean, that's how much of a gardener she is. Um, so, I mean, I do, you know, I, I do the outline and then I, well, first I do the research, then I do the outline and then I do the writing. And, you know, I'm researching the whole time and rewriting the whole time. And my general rule for writing is, um, and it's just a really good one. And it's, it's, you know, if you wanna get in shape, you need to work on diet and exercise. It's really that simple. And if you wanna be a writer, you have to write. And then you have to write every day, really. That's how I see it. Um, have a schedule and so for me it's like 15 minutes a day minimum that's my commitment to myself and to the writing because everybody can find 15 minutes in their day maybe it's maybe you're eating breakfast or lunch or dinner maybe it's right before you go to bed maybe you have a break maybe it's 
you know, you're on the metro and you have your laptop with you. Carrying a laptop, carrying an iBook, uh, a MacBook with me is a, is a big thing, uh, uh, pre-pandemic and post-pandemic, hopefully, um, so that I can write where, wherever I am. And so that's the rule. And if you only, if you just do the bare minimum, 15 minutes a day, then at the end of the week, that's an hour, 45 minutes. That's a few pages. I mean, that's not nothing. And even if what you wrote isn't any good, maybe you've worked something out in your head or you've figured out like, well, that's not what I want to do, but it's, it's, it's not nothing. You're achieving something. What are you writing 15 minutes a day right now? I'm not right now. I'm, I'm promoting this book, but I am thinking about the next, uh, the next book, um, because the publisher wants me to do another one. And I'm thinking that it will take place in the 1970s, uh, cause I did the fifties and the sixties. And I'm, and I think the main character might be Charlie and Margaret's son. And so Charlie and Margaret will still be in it, um, but they'll be in their 50s. Uh, and as somebody uh, in his 50s, I can tell you, I'm not up for any adventures. So uh, it better to have a 18, 19 year old son, uh, Ike, uh, his real name is Dwight Martyr in the book, but his nickname would be Ike because Charlie's a, uh, an Eisenhower Republican. And uh, yeah, and I think having Ike Martyr be 18, 19 years old, being the main character in the 70s, and I have some ideas for, but I don't want to spoil them. But that's, I'm just thinking about it right now and reading about the 70s, but I'm not, I'm not writing right now. Uh, and, and during the pandemic, you're, another one of your books, The Outposts, An Untold Story of American Valor uh, about the war in Afghanistan was released as a feature film. Did you have any role in the film? I did, I was an executive producer. I worked with Rod Lurie on the film. Um, I offered thoughts, I mean, I wasn't, you know, I didn't have final cut or anything like that, but you know, I, I offered ideas. My main uh, role, I think, was kind of serving as an ambassador between the film and the families who actually experienced what happened uh, and the soldiers and veterans who experienced what happened, like keeping them informed, because it was Rod Lurie, the director, uh, who did an, an amazing job with the film. He's a West Point graduate and it was very important to him uh, that you know that the families be part of the process. So we even had a, a special screening of the movie uh, in October 2019. Um, and the film came out in the spring of 2020. And of course it came out um, not the way we wanted it to come out because of uh, the pandemic, but they all got to see it in the theater. And the studio Millennium flew uh, Gold Star parents and spouses to Washington, D.C. And General Allen, who was a commander in Afghanistan, he now runs the Brookings Institution, he hosted it. And um, that, was, uh, that was a very intense situation. But uh, thankfully after, because look, I mean, I wrote the book and it was the most, it's, it's still the most uh, meaningful professional experience of my life because uh, just telling these stories uh, just was very moving and touching and I felt a, an immense responsibility. And then just watching it brought to the screen where you know Rod and the writers, uh, Eric and Paul and the production team and the actors, everybody was very respectful. But you know, when you tell, when you make a movie, uh, you have to take some liberties. You're not making a documentary. I mean, you know, Orlando Bloom is not Ben Keating. Um, so there were some conflations of people who served in 2006 and 2007 and 2008 who are put in the in the movie in 2009. But beyond that, it's, it's fairly accurate. And uh, it was nerve wracking to show it to them. But to a person, they all thought the movie honored their loved ones. And so that 
was once I got over that that screening, everything else was just uh, cake. I mean, it was disappointing that it couldn't be released in theaters, really. But I mean, that's hard, hardly the the biggest tragedy of the pandemic. And and I'm you know I'm glad people saw it. And I imagine you're still in touch with some of these families uh, of these army soldiers. What was their responses to the announcement of the withdrawal of U.S. troops from Afghanistan? You know, it's all over the map, as you might imagine. I mean, uh, a lot of service members, um, especially uh, NCOs, are, are more conservative um, than uh, others. Um, but there are, there are some uh, liberals uh, in the ranks there, too. I mean, I think at the end of the day, um, well, first of all, Trump, um, I mean, Trump made it easier for Joe Biden to, whether or not you agree with the decision of pulling troops uh, out of Afghanistan this year, Trump made it a lot easier for Biden to do it. I mean, he, he was talking about and wanted to do it for years and years and years. He didn't do it, but he, but he you know, he, he reduced the number of troops. So I think that probably in a, in a, in a way helped Biden make the announcement because it, you know, Trump had already gotten, you know, the MAGA world on board with that idea, and then, um, so I mean, but I think they're all over the map. Look, I mean, at the tr at the end of the day, for the people who have lost loved ones, which is you know everyone that I'm in touch with, whether or not it's a family member or just somebody with whom they served, I mean, it's not, you know, it's not a debate on a, it's not a theoretical debate. I mean, th these are. You know, they, they lived it, and it's you know, it's it's tough. I mean, you know, these eight in the outpost, these eight men gave their lives defending a base that literally a few days later the U.S. abandoned. I mean, that's just the facts of it. And you know, and there were a whole bunch of others that gave their lives. I mean, this, the book, the outpost. I have it right here. Um, the book, the outpost. I mean, it is a big book. And it's thick, and it tells the story. It's from 2006 to 2009, and it tells the story of everybody who lost their lives or limbs or whatever on their way to building the base, building the base, keeping the base, doing the mission of the base, and then defending the base in any number of battles. And at the end of the day, I mean, these these men and, and some women served there too early on. The base isn't there anymore. So, I mean, I think that they have very ambivalent and mixed feelings about it all. And we only have a few minutes left, Jake, um, but you know, you do a really fantastic job, I think, of incorporating um, the beats that you have been consistently reporting on, like military families, the war in Afghanistan, uh, on a regular basis, even when it's not necessarily what DC might consider news at the moment. When right. you're making those editorial decisions to prioritize things that are important, um, you know, what, what's guiding those and, and how do you think other outlets uh, and journalists can be doing that better? Well, I mean, I think the Washington Post does a great job. You have some uh, amazing reporters. Greg Jaffe, uh, uh, who the, the po he writes for the Post and he covers a lot of these issues and he was an immense help uh, when I was writing the Outpost. Um, I mean, look, it's just for me, it's, it's uh, people know uh, who work for me that if there's a story we can tell about veterans, um, you know, I'm interested in hearing what it is. Uh, and, but at the same time, I mean, I'm also trying to do, do more. I, the, my show just went to two hours a day about three weeks ago. And one of the things I've, I've been trying to do is making sure that the, we, the CNN has 
so many great reporters, um, I mean, on the Hill, at the White House, et cetera, but also we have this, these amazing international reporters. And one of the things I've been trying to make sure is that <clears throat> reporters like Clarissa Ward or Nima Albagger or Arwa Damon or others, Nick Robertson, Ben Wiedemann, uh, et cetera, know that they have a home uh, at my show for international news. Because I think what's going on right now with news consumption is, uh, you know, I think I think a lot of newspapers and and news channels and everybody everybody's lost uh, some audience uh, because of the election and the fact that that it's over and Biden, you know, for whatever reason, whether they like Trump or were horrified by Trump, people are not as focused as they were. But that said, there's still a, a whole millions and millions of Americans who, during the Trump era, uh, across the political spectrum, realized that they like news. They're interested in news. They're news junkies. And um, I mean, and that's what I am at heart. I mean, if I were not a journalist, I would still be consuming news the way I do. So it's a good thing I am. Um, and so I'm just trying to figure out how can they're there and they want they want to hear about what's going on all over the world and in D.C. and in and in Atlanta and in Montana. And so how can we do that? What's the best way for us to do that? And one of the ways I'm trying to do that is by making sure that we are bringing these great uh, reporters and their amazing work, whether it's Clarissa going to Myanmar or Nima, um, you know, doing these reports from Ethiopia and, and making sure people uh, see that there's still a lot of news worth consuming. And last question, really quick before we wrap, I'm going to put you on the spot. AT&T just announced $43 billion deal to merge WarnerMedia yeah. with Discovery. Any reaction to that? The I'm not like, uh, I don't have any any great insight into this, except I, I will say this. Jeff Zucker is an incredible boss. And if this helps keep him at CNN, which I feel like maybe it could, then that would be great news for CNN. Jake, thank you again for taking the time out of your really busy day. Please keep us updated on your next book. Uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Tomorrow, former Congressman Will Hurd is gonna be joining us here along with our own Carol Lennig to talk about her new book, A Deep Look at the Secret Service. Thanks so much for watching today and we'll see you later. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.